0: You want, to, uh, you want to do a podcast? Oh, is that what you want? Jeez, I know.
1: The, the vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve. So I'm constantly going, no, no, stop that, put that down, don't touch that, take that out of your mouth.
0: We have to deal with things as they are, not as we want them to be. Today is January twenty fifth, two thousand fifteen, and this is episode one hundred and three of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mister Andrew Callett. Hey, Jerry, how you doing tonight? I'm pretty awesome. How about you?
1: I I don't know if I'm awesome, but I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good.
0: Well, you know, stick around. Maybe it'll. Hey,
1: you know, catch on. we're doing it. We're doing a show, so that that's that's always a positive. That's,
0: that's why I'm awesome.
1: And I noticed on Twitter, I have exactly 666 followers. So therefore, I have the Twitter of the devil. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) I don't know if this grants me any special powers, but Uh, I will try.
0: After the show, you can try. (laughs) All right. So uh, as usual, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer employers. uh. So, um... Jumping into our stories, the first one we have tonight comes from ABC, as in the Australian Broadcasting Company. Um, Essentially, there's a company called Aussie Travel Cover, which is a travel insurance company who apparently was breached in a pretty good way back in December, uh, but chose not to communicate that to their customers that, that were actually breached. So, uh, a hacker who goes by the name of Abdillo, I think that's probably how you say it, uh, apparently posted a, a significant amount of data, uh, from this company's database online and, uh, anyway, kind of chaos ensued and Aussie Travel Cover communicated with its, um, with his business partners, that this had happened, but essentially said, "We don't find any particular need yet to communicate to the end customers." So, kind of sit tight. Well, uh, the you know this uh, news organization caught wind of it somehow and started contacting customers who had not yet heard of it, and uh, and so you know, I, there's really not anything in my view that's innovative. Apparently, the breach was. Done with an SQL injection attack, uh, but I think the reason I bring this up is this is a great example of how not to do um, relations with your customer in the wake of a breach. Having having the a news channel contact the the impacted parties is is really not uh, not a great thing. So, um,
1: I learned that Australian news people ramble. All over the place when they're trying to tell a story.
0: That's the new. That's the new thing, though, isn't it? I
1: was like, this was uh, this was a story dearly in need of a good editor.
0: I, I agree. I, <laughs> although I think it is, I think it may actually be a transcript of a of a uh, TV yeah, program. Right.
1: You know, the other thought that occurred to me is you to be cynical about it for a moment. If you're waiting for a company to notify you that your details have been breached before you do something about it, might not be the best plan. You ultimately are stuck in a position of waiting for them, waiting for them to find the breach, waiting for them to notify you. Maybe you're better off just assuming that you've been that any data you're putting out to these companies might get breached, and uh, not rely on you know the crafty, crappy, inevitable credit monitoring services to somehow protect you
0: yeah i wonder if that's a thing in australia like it is here in the states there's there's really no uh, no indication about that but um but yeah i mean it's a good it's a good point look at your credit scores every now and then pull your credit report take a look at that um but i mean i, I guess Free, freeze your credit perhaps or yeah freeze your credit mm-hmm. absolutely but uh, you know I, I guess just from a from a an uh, organizational perspective, I think this is just a, another example of how not, to, uh, how not to do it.
1: Now, the only thing I can possibly give them a little bit of credit on is they did seem to say to their agents who they notified first is that we've, we're in, we have engaged with a firm to investigate outside consultants. So they seem to be in the middle of investigating the breach, and they could have been trying to get more information before they went public which we've talked about in the past when you're in the middle of a situation. You, know, you don't want the news to get away from you before you have all the facts and know what's going on.
0: Yeah, that's fair. The other, the, the other kind of interesting and maybe slightly odd point that that the reporter brings up a couple of times is that apparently the Australian police uh, don't appear very interested in pursuing the, the uh, yeah. alleged <laughs> perpetrator of the crime.
1: Yeah, that, that was an odd thing too, that the... The guy's basically going. Yep, I did it. I'm going to continue to do it. I'm right here. Here I am. How you doing? Cops are like, eh. Yep. We got we got a wallaby we're running down at the moment. <laughs> Kangaroo assault. What? Wow. little More pressing. That. That. Did I just insult all of our that Australian
0: terribly, insulting. Listeners? Yeah. Well, I'll never get hired by Australian. No, I'm sorry.
1: All right. I love Australia. I'd like to go. You've been. I've never been. I want to go.
0: It is a wonderful place.
1: Am I? Am I not going to be able
0: to go now? Are they going to just say no? That's right. You're going to get there. They're going to turn you around. <sighs> well, now I have a sad. Send you to New Zealand.
1: Hey, that's not too bad. I could go see all the film sites for Lord of the Rings. That'd be pretty sweet.
0: Man, we are digressing. All right, <laughs> pull up, pull up. Our next story is, uh, is a blog post. From a, a website called breakingbits.net. This was a really big to do last week. Yep. Uh, so, a researcher by the name of Dylan or Dylan Sakamani apparently found that GoDaddy had a cross site request forgery vulnerability in its website management portal um, that that would potentially let Uh, malicious person do things like uh, change your DNS records or change your auto domain auto renew status from, you know, yes to no, which one could imagine might not be a great thing Um, where, where, which I think is not that, you know, these kinds of vulnerabilities are found all the time, but where this one went really crazy, particularly in contrast to the the whole google microsoft dust up is that this person gave them 2 days to respond and uh you know he basically said that on uh, January 17th he discovered the vulnerability on uh, and tried to contact godaddy on January 18th he continued to call, con- try to contact godaddy on on the 19th he decided that it wasn't going to work so he Went full disclosure.
1: Well, Godaddy came back on the 18th and said that there wasn't a timeline for the fix. Yep, good point. So, so I guess he didn't like that answer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, Obviously not. They they fixed it on the 19th. Yeah. So it it is fixed. Uh, I'm, but he published on the 18th, so it looks like they. Yeah, he published on the 18th. Looks like they fixed on the 19th. Okay. Um, but yeah, uh, it's also interesting that at least according to him, this is one side of the story, GoDaddy wasn't exactly easy to reach about this issue. Um, and you know, this is a pretty serious thing. If I can edit your, your name servers, or if I can edit your zone files, I can pretty much completely clone your site and do whatever I want to do, which is uh, really nasty. Yeah. Intercept
0: your email. And do all sorts of nasty stuff.
1: Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's a problem. It's a pretty serious vulnerability for GoDaddy. Uh, you would think someone would have noticed this by now. It's a pretty common problem, and something that you think somebody would have picked up during an audit, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. What What the uh, what, what the researcher said was he He noticed that there wasn't a uh, a, a CSRF token. You know. Um, you know, a, a tracking token being passed uh, back and forth as he was doing his uh, his updates, and so that kind of led him, I think, to believe that there might be something amiss. And sure enough, there was. So, yeah, I mean, th- that is, I think, in this day and age, a pretty common common problem.
1: If they, I, I would have to imagine, if Goday were engaging outside consultants or even internal red teaming, this would be
0: something very quickly discovered uh seems like it would be absolutely but you know and, uh, one of the things i was thinking about is as you pointed out dns is a, a pretty darn important thing and it kind of points to the vulnerability of of these types of services and we need to be we need to be cautious now in this particular case it wasn't a situation where you know they could an attacker could just go arbitrarily edit anybody's uh, zone. They had to. They would have to, you know, do, use some kind of social engineering. There would need to be an intermediate step, right, to get you to open a web page or, or do something like that, which you know is not out of the out of the realm of possibility. Right. And, and how would how do you detect that something is amiss? And I think there are some service offerings out there, some companies who will, who will essentially monitor your your DNS records and tell you if they change, which yeah. is a, you know, might be a, obviously it's not going to be a, a preventive control, but it might tell you if something is happening. You know, the, I think the worst case scenario is not necessarily that somebody, um, you know, hijacks your DNS and, and uses it to deface your website, but, you know, kind of does it on the sly and intercepts your email and uh, they you know they can do all sorts of nasty stuff, surreptitiously. So
1: So I found the thread between uh, Dylan and GoDaddy.
0: It's interesting. Uh, Basically, he says,
1: hey, I have a security vulnerability to report to you. Uh, Who do I email? GoDaddy comes back and says, you need to contact our support at domain URL so we can view the concerns in your account. He comes back and says, no, this is a security vulnerability allowing me to compromise other accounts. Is there a director of security? Uh, they come back and say, I can pass on details of the vulnerability you've discovered. Can you follow DM the steps you followed to duplicate? Uh, apparently then they go to DM uh, and uh, he says he just DM'd all the details. It isn't complicated. So there shouldn't be much difficulty replicating it. And they come back and say, uh, we greatly appreciate you bringing this up. Just sent a reply to your DM. So that's all we see public. So well, I don't see anything here that substantiates in public. They said there was no timeline for the fix, but Conceivably, that happened over uh, direct message.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I, obviously we don't have the context of what that discussion was, but it's entirely likely that the uh, the, the person monitoring their Twitter feed wouldn't ha- be authoritative on produce, providing a, a remediation timeline. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think that's pretty fair.
0: So, uh, anyhow, it, it is, um, you know, it's, I, I just think it's food for thought. Uh, it's an attack vector as you said it 's a it 's a third party that we're very heavily reliant on so all right moving on our next story is an update on the never ending sony saga and this one comes from recode and uh I think recode was some of the company or was was the company who had some of the really early discussion about uh proposing that Sony was going to come out and disclose it was North Korea, which didn't end up happening, at least on that time frame. And the new thing here is that apparently this attack was facilitated by some unknown, un- let me restate that, by some zero day in some undisclosed piece of software. And, you know, they go on and on and on and on and on and on about what a zero day is and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I think one of the, hopefully it's not news, right? But zero days happen. This isn't, this isn't like nation state stuff. They happen all the time. And we have to be resilient to them, or, you know, at least we need to to acknowledge that they happen and and um,
1: look at all the pwn to own and similar contests that happen, go. you know, dozens of times a year. Those are all zero days, right? That's all they are. Researchers find zero days every day. This doesn't I agree with you, one hundred percent. No way makes us a nation state level attack. I am not saying you know that it, nation states don't use zero days, but the fact that there was a zero day used in no way limits this to nation state level.
0: Right? Yeah, I mean, just uh, just yesterday over over this weekend there was a zero day in adobe flash which was being used by the um uh, one of the exploit kits right and that is not a
1: still unpatched as far as i know
0: i think they just released a patch okay there was, was it today yeah was it today yeah it was today yeah there were two right they there were two back to back so they released the patch i think on thursday or friday and then they just released another one
1: which goes to some of the notes I have for their story, that they also, in this story, say, well, because it was a zero day, this reinforces Mandian's position by Kevin Mandia. There's nothing that Sony could have possibly done to defend against this attack. Bull Pucky.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that's the point, is that this stuff happens a lot, and we need You know, we need to think about how we design our infrastructure to be resilient against it.
1: Yeah, there there are, you know, take take the Flash one that just got patched today. We knew it was released. It was out there for uh, four or five days, something like that. You know, my thought process is, okay, if you can't patch it, can you turn it off? Can you reduce the attack surface in some way? Uh, Could you disable Flash? in that case, right? Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Okay, if you can't disable flash, can you detect it being exploited? What are the IOCs? Do you have any other infrastructure in the middle that could uh, stop that particular type of traffic? Once you know about that particular exploit? Uh, If you don't know about it all, it's completely brand new, there's no information out there. Where is your breach detection? your anomaly detection going on uh, because we've got to be in a position to detect breaches, regardless if we know about them or not, if your only methodology for stopping the bad guys is vulnerability management and patch management. First of all, we suck at patching to begin with, but second of all, you're going to be behind the curve always. Absolutely. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying you have to get ahead of that mindset. So to say it was a zero day, there's nothing you could do. We cannot accept that mindset. That is just not viable. And there are things you can do.
0: Yes, well said. And you know, I, I think uh, I guess depending on the sensitivity and the size of our organization and whatnot, you know, we we may not want to wait until uh, Adobe you know, Flash is is uh, has been exploited. We we ought to we ought again be designing resilient systems. Uh, either either with you know, isolation or sandboxing or um, detection, some, you know, some intrinsic capability to weather the storm. Because we know several times a year, maybe lots of times a year, Flash is going to have a vulnerability that's going to be actively exploited. Java is going to hit same thing. Silverlight, you know, Internet Explorer, Chrome, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Let's think through how we mitigate those.
1: That's one of the reasons I like whitelisting technology. It's not perfect, but it really does reduce the attack surface. Absolutely. Now, is it a panacea? No. Is it something that we're finding every day? People are finding ways to get around? Yes. But again, good enough does not need to be the, you know, perfect does not need to be the enemy of good enough.
0: Right. Absolutely. So moving on, our next story comes from darkreading.com, and the title is... NSA report how to defend against destructive malware. So the NSA's Information Assurance Directorate I'm sure it's completely coincidental to the Sony breach. Has completely. completely. Has released a best practices paper for uh, preparing for destructive malware. And they have a, a list of best practices which I thought were pretty good. Some of them well, I would say a lot of them are probably relatively obvious. But it's in my view worth reading through and there is something that is conspicuously missing and i'll wait till the end to get back to that so the first uh, the first best practice they have is to segregate network systems and functions so so that if an attacker hacks one area he can't access or he can't necessarily reach others number two is reduce and protect administrator privileges to minimize the damage if a bad guy obtains them and we've talked about that a lot in the past. Employee application whitelisting to prevent malicious code from executing. Just L- talked about that. Yep. Limit workstation to workstation communication to reduce the attack surface. You know, that one I don't think is well socialized. I don't see that one all that often.
1: No, uh, but you know, I was thinking about that. Back in the 90s, we had a lot of self-propagating worms. that It was all the rage to shut off workstation or station communications. In fact it was even in the switches. You could you could allow folks in the same broadcast domain to not talk to each other or to talk to each other. And I think that's kind of fallen out of out of you know out of our mindset.
0: Right. Well we haven't we haven't had the the worm kind of uh, propagation method in a long time. It's you know it's it's come in via email or or pulled in via web browser. But um you know I, I, I think the ones that tend to happen system to system are, you know, they, they tend to be the more lateral movement, not necessarily a bot, right, But or a worm, but maybe, um, you know, maybe an attacker using, uh, you know, PS exec or something like that. Uh, so the next one is to run perimeter firewalls, application layer firewalls, forward proxies in the sandboxing or other dynamic traffic and code analysis. Uh, use and monitor host and network logging is next. That's a that's a good one too. It is I don't see often done, especially with workstation logs. Not many not many organizations pay attention to those. Implement pass the hash mitigations. Uh, also very important. Run Microsoft's Emet or other anti exploit mitigation or anti exploit tools. And uh you know one thing I've noticed is that the uh the NSA is really high on Emet. Uh they they have written a lot about about um, Emet in the past, which makes me suspect it. But uh employ <laughs> employee Yeah, you know, in- the on,
1: the only thing about Emet though is to be fair, it can be tough to run in a, in a complicated big enterprise. It does have a lot of administrative overhead, uh, same as whitelisting. So you gotta. I am not saying don't use it, but they sort of brush over the <laughs> level of complexity it takes to run Emet.
0: Absolutely, and I think it, especially if you have a an a, estate a that uses lots of different software, you know, some one of the one of the problems I've seen firsthand with it is that uh, there are some some pieces of software that you just can't use some of the mitigations, and and fortunately, Emet. Let's you set g- pretty granular policy, so you can say that I don't want to apply ASLR to, you know, Firefox, uh, but I want it to apply to everything else, as an example. Uh, but, but again, if you have, you know, thousands of different software applications, that can get really, really hairy. So, uh, employ antivirus reputation services to augment traditional signature-based AV. So this is, you know, c- kind of the... Uh, I would say whitelist, um, you know, uh, whitelist light. I suppose I would say a lot of a lot of the antivirus companies now have this um, uh, reputation, file reputation in the cloud concept. So I think that uh, that's not a bad idea. Usually, a lot of companies have it. I don't. I've never seen a downside to using it. So. Um, run host intrusion prevention systems, you know, again, those can detect what they can detect, right? And then, uh, regularly update and patch software. Now, the thing that is not on this list is user awareness training. Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think of that. Look at you being all smart. Yeah, it was, um, you know, we, we,
1: Who's a good podcaster? <laughs> Who's a good podcaster?
0: I I see over and over and over people talking about how important it is to have training as as an integral part of their defense against this kind of stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, the, the, the delivery mechanisms for these things are becoming kind of arbitrarily good. And... And I, I just don't think that it's reasonable to expect that we're going to, um, even you know, even today, let alone in a year or two years, re- reasonably be ex- expect our employees to recognize and, and not click on something, and still get their job done. I mean, I think we can train them not to click on anything, but then they're not going to be productive employees. So
1: yeah, it's a tough one. Uh, We have debated this one endlessly, endlessly. Yes. And, you know, I think where I finally settled is that a certain level of user awareness training is good. It shows due diligence. It shows to regulators and others that you're taking prudent steps. (laughs) It's defendable uh, to say, look, we did user awareness training now. But all that being said, I don't know that it probably lowers the click rate of phishing more than a certain small percentage, uh, which may be worth it in of itself, so you got to figure out what that balance is. But if you're not backing that up with technical controls and you're depending on your users to be smart enough, uh, you are asking for trouble, because we are highly susceptible to the psychology behind phishing.
0: Absolutely. And, and again, as you as you pointed out, it has... A material benefit in a in a particular sense. Are you going to start a Material Girl now? Is that where uh, this comes in? No, no, that's that's a whole other podcast. Oh, I um, was hoping. But uh, boy, you you really derailed my thought process there. So <laughs> um, this is
1: part of your you know when when we do flight training uh, and we do our practical testing. Uh, one of the things the FAA examiner throws at you is realistic distraction training. Right to see uh-huh. and and testing to see how well you do. In my case, uh, some he, I think he dropped a pen or a pencil on the floor while I was in the middle of an approach to landing. So, like, can you get that for me? And I just ignored him. So, this is part of your advanced podcaster training. Uh-huh. Can you handle realistic distractions by an obnoxious co-host and continue your thought?
0: So, so anyway, what I was saying is that in, in a, a in a sense. Awareness training does help the virus, you know, the, the malware propagation problem, but in my view, it helps in as much as it reduces the overhead of your help desk or or uh, the the downtime that people experience because their computer's locked up with CryptoLocker. Uh, but it does not uh, it does not drive down to zero the opportunity for the stuff to get into your network, which I think is. Where the NSA is head at head is at. You know they're they're looking at this. I think more from a an affirmative control standpoint, not from how do we get you know, how do we get ten percent less uh, malware infections. It's you know, and I guess if that is your objective, you know that makes sense. And and more power to you. That is an achievable goal, right? But if you're If you are, in fact, worried about malware getting into your network as you know through this vector and you're more or less intolerant to it, then you're going to have to take more drastic measures.
1: I would agree. The other thing they throw out here is, and and interestingly, you know, I'm not big on covering government recommendations, but I actually thought this was a pretty good paper. Uh, And the one thing I would say is that executive leadership also resonate where they can re- these sorts of government supply papers can resonate with them. So if you're looking for some ammunition to take to executive leadership and say, well, look what the NSA says. Now, NSA doesn't have the best rep right now, but just saying that. The other thing they point out as well is uh, they've about a little section on incident response and having make sure you have an incident response plan. You're testing that plan. You're exercising that plan. You're running through it so people know what they're supposed to do, and you actually try it before you're in the middle of – an actual crisis, which we've said repeatedly on the show. So I, I can't disagree with that.
0: And for Pete's sake, back up your data. (laughs) And test the backup. And test the backup. Yes. All right. So moving on to our next story, which is from data breach today. And the the title is court rules in favor of breached retailer. So this is a very interesting situation where Schnucks, uh, which is a, uh, a, a grocery store uh, who was breached back in 2012 and they had, I think 2.5 or two somewhere around two and a half million credit cards stolen. Uh, As I understand it, the, uh, their, their merchant or merchant processor first data held back uh, some amount of money, which was undisclosed. And so to cover the, the, you know, the, the expenses related to the breach. And Schnucks took uh, First Data and the Merchant Bank, whose name escapes me right now, I think it was, uh, anyway, they they took them to court and basically said, you know, you, we don't owe you that much money. We only owe you half a million dollars per hour contract. And the judge actually sided with them. And, and what was interesting yeah,
1: uh, the processor was First Data Merchant, and
0: the bank was Citicorp Bank ah,
1: Services. Just
0: Thank you. So, what's what's kind of interesting here is this is this is I guess a little bit of a, a possibly a con, some some specifics related to this particular contract, but essentially, First Data in in City said you know th- they didn't claim that. Uh, schnucks had done anything wrong in terms of their pci compliance because if they had the contract didn't have a a, a liability maximum for schnucks but because they didn't because first data didn't claim that schnucks had done something under the under the pci clause uh, it fell into this other bucket which had a half million dollar uh, limit on it, and that was what the judge found. So, I, I it's kind of interesting. I wonder, you know, they, they interview a couple of different people in here who say that you know this is probably not really going to materially change you know, the landscape of, of uh, breaches and whatnot. But I, I would expect that it will probably change the way some of these contracts are written, and I think it's, it's an interesting point to you know for people on both sides to take a look at what's in their contract either you're both now and and what they should be writing in the future so interesting stuff
1: yeah, I think this is going to get more exciting, <laughs> as it were, as we get more and more of these mega breaches get litigated in court. And I think we're going to see some more folks trying to shift around liability a bit. And we'll see, especially with the, the shift to EVM and chip and PIN and whatnot, uh, it'll, it'll get more interesting, I think. Uh, I think certain uh, processors and, and banks may try to put more of the liability back on
0: the retailers. Absolutely. All right. So our next story comes from CSO and the title is Six Biggest Business Security Risks and How You Can Fight Back. So this is another this is one of those surveys which I often find a little dubious, but I thought that some of the findings were were interesting and since uh, I'm all about confirmation bias, um well, you know, here it is. <laughs>
1: and I can confirm that you are indeed about confirmation bias. Uh,
0: absolutely. In fact, most of us are. That's true. So uh, uh,
1: I do want to state for the record before we get into this. Okay, this article is broken up into two sections. The first is the risk, and then that's the solution. All the solutions are coming from vendors who make solutions for that problem. Let's just keep that in mind
0: as and, we get into this. And some of the solutions, I have no idea where the heck they're coming from.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got some commentary on that. Let me tell you, sir. <laughs>
0: All right. So, risk number one is disgruntled employees, uh, which I think probably need no introduction. So, their solution is that we need to make sure that we remove privileges when employees separate from the business, and also that we monitor, you know, basically monitor the the use of privileges. You know, one of the problems I have with that is, especially for smaller companies, that gets really difficult. Now, you know, I, I think... Fortunately,
1: this solution was provided by a vice president from a company called CyberArk that makes technology to help with this very problem.
0: Well, on, on the... Um, you know, on, I'm on the, snarky. I'm sorry. A little bit. On the point of <laughs> terminating accounts, I agree. But I'm not sure they do anything in terms of monitoring...
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. They, they do all. They do? Of stuff. All right, okay. I'm not endorsing, but yeah, they're all about privileged account management. All right. So yeah, it's it's them and Lieberman Software are the two biggies in that space. But all that being said, um, I don't disagree with their advice.
0: It's just not necessarily practical.
1: <laughs> I, I think it is for enterprise. I, I think yeah, Well, I think, right, right, right.
0: For yeah, for enterprise, absolutely. I guess I'm talking more for the SMB space. Oh, they're
1: screwed. We've known that for years. It's not, <laughs> they're it's Just unplug. Oh, jeez. <laughs> no, but it, no. In all seriousness, it is tough for for the small business folks. It really is. They, there's a lot of this. They they just don't have the staff, the time, the expertise, the money, uh, the cycles to do.
0: Right. Yep. Absolutely. Risk number two is careless or uninformed employees who may be leaving their unlocked iPhone in a taxi or uh, doing uh, stuff like using weak passwords or visiting unauthorized websites. And if we had only trained them well enough, we, we would be okay. So of course, the solution there is to you know properly train them which, you know, again, I, I'm, I I think you can train people to a point. Um, you know, I, I'm just, I'm very skeptical because in general I see that people don't give a damn about their own personal stuff and they care even less about their business stuff. So I think there is a, a distinct limit on how much you can accomplish with training. So keep that in mind. Um, Risk number three is mobile devices. Oh, oh, go ahead. Before we move on, they yeah. do
1: offer some other stuff here, and I think we can offer some more advice. Go ahead. Than just that. So they talk about encrypting and having a BYOD strategy. Um, you know, and we get into this as well in the next one. But you know, for careless employees, uh, there is some technical controls depending on what they're doing uh, to make sure that they are. You know, for instance. Forgetting your iPhone and a taxi, that kind of falls under BYOD, but uh, which we'll talk about soon. Uh, but nonetheless, there are technical controls out there other than just educate your employees. So depending on what it is you're worried about, uh, you can audit password complexity, you can put an encryption on the devices that could go missing. Uh, you know there's a lot of stuff you could do depending on what it is. so I think I think there's more to be done than just educate your employees.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree. There there was a a bit of a funny uh, sentence in here that goes like this. Also, make sure employees use strong passwords on all devices. He adds, passwords are the first line of defense, so make sure employees use passwords that have upper and lower case letters, numbers, and symbols. It's also important to use separate passwords for each registered site and to change it every thirty to sixty days. Uh, and then he goes on to say, you, know, you should probably use a password manager to do that because. If you're going to go to that trouble, go to two-factor. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, I, 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 think there are some, there are some environments, you know, and I've I've seen them firsthand, where it's it's um it's prohibitive to go to two-factor for for some reasons, and uh, you know, I think I think that it is really really important. To to you know, number one, use strong passwords, but number two, to use different passwords on on you know on sites uh, on different sites, and you can't do that unless you use a password manager.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. There, in fact, uh, I'm I'm struggling right now uh, with my new job because I don't have admin rights, so I can't load a password manager. <laughs> I'm like, um, guys, can can I please have a password manager, please?
0: You could go get one of those password books. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's, I've, I've, you know, I'm making it work, and, and they're doing fine. It's just I don't, I don't, I'm, I, just thought it was kind of entertaining. You know, <laughs> I'm so used to my routine and, and my and my various tools that you walk into a lockdown environment, and it's and my new job is doing a good job of having very lockdown. Machines and and something like wow! I so this is what it's like to be a user with no privileges.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I do agree. Two factors, you know, certainly what we should be uh, striving for where we can. So moving on to uh, mobile devices, one of the one thing that struck me this first sentence: data theft is at high vulnerability when employees are using mobile devices particularly their own, to share data, access company information, or neglect to change mobile passwords. You know, which one of those is not like the others? I, you know, I've often, and, and I suppose I sometimes am contrarian, but I've often wondered, you know, what is the risk of not changing your password every 60 days on, on your mobile I, device? I would guess if somebody's brute-forcing it gives them a little
1: limited amount of time to actually access. So if they have somehow guessed your password and are surreptitiously logging in, uh, you lock them out after a period of time. I,
0: that's all I got. That's, I mean, that is it, right? That's the, that's the thing you're defending against. And the, I guess, is that, is that, uh, likely enough to warrant, you know, the, the, the problem and just, just a little anecdote, right? Um, I have an iPhone six plus, and I am a. I, uh, by the way, I am an ardent opponent to biometrics, but I absolutely love the fingerprint reader uh, on on the iPhone, and uh, and I use it religiously. In my company's uh, policy, you know, obviously allows that, but it requires a password change. And at least on Apple devices, you. And I don't know if this is a setting that that was intentionally set or if it is just the way it is. Uh, when when it's time to change your password, it's time to change your password. You can't you can't get out of it. Uh, and if you need to take yourself off of mute, there's nothing. There's no way around it. And uh, so I actually forgot my password. I, I had to I had to change my password in order to get my phone off of mute. And then I promptly forgot what I set it to. Fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, I I, I, uh, I did end up finally remembering what it was. I had to brute force it, but uh, well, yeah. So so anyhow, I, I you know it's I, I I think in a way it's a bit of an inconvenience that provides little value. That's just my personal uh, personal view. Now I don't think you can have it the same forever, but yeah, whatever. But but I do think that you have to you certainly have to have the ability to you know remotely detonate those devices. And they talk from a solutions perspective. They you know they of course talk to good technology about containerizing things, and, and then they go really weird with this hybrid cloud. Which I... I, I uh, again,
1: look at who's just flying the advice.
0: Well, no, I, I understand that it's a vendor, but I'm I, I'm not comprehending the fit. So, anyway. Well, that's
1: because you haven't gone through their marketing pitch. Uh,
0: obviously, I have not, yes. Uh, risk number four is cloud applications. Basically, encrypt your stuff.
1: I have a problem with that statement. Go ahead. So, if your entire risk is your cloud application, right? Or I should say, if the risk is the cloud application and your entire defense against the risk of this cloud application is encryption and maintaining the key locally, what exactly are you mitigating against right there? So unless you're just doing pure backups in the cloud, you have to interact and work with that data in some way. So you have to unencrypt that data on the fly to work with it. So you've got plenty of data in motion that's happily automatically being decrypted for you by the cloud provider or something in between. So what are we buying by encrypting our data before we send it to the cloud provider? So they can't get to it? Well, what is the cloud doing for you? I'm confused by this. You know, it all, the cloud means lots of different things. Okay, well, let's say it's Salesforce. Well, that's not really an option. You need to actually use Salesforce. So you log into Salesforce's portal and you use it. So your data is decrypted while you're using it. So your threat is actually somebody else logging into Salesforce as you. Or in a very pocket case, Salesforce going into their data center and stealing their own hard drive with your data. I don't think that's going to happen. Let's say you're doing AWS and you're standing up your own boxes. Again. You've got to inter- interact with that. You're doing something with it. It's that there just to be data sitting in a cloud. So what is encrypting it buying you? Help me.
0: You know I think there's there's potentially some use cases, but I think it requires some some uh deeper engineering, right? So uh if if you're tying the key, you know, the decryption keys, let's say, to your uh, to your login ID. And so you, in order for you to access the data, you end up having to log in. So there, the, the the key isn't resonant on the system, but in order to, in order to decrypt the data, you, you know, you, you're essentially decrypting it with your session ID. Well, th- again, that's, it's kind of obscure, right? <laughs>
1: I think it's, once again, the vendor defining the problem space as the problem they can solve. And who is it who's providing this little data point? Oh, the founder and CEO of, wait for it, Cypher Cloud.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think intuitively it it probably resonates with people that if I'm putting my confidential data on someone else's computer, which, by the way, is what the cloud is, the cloud is someone else's computer, that you would want to encrypt it. And then it comes down to the mechanics, you know, the reality as you described, right? You have th- there's there's limitations on what you can feasibly do and expect. So,
1: I would say you're much better off doing really good account management, really good monitoring of access, having good backups, watching closely who has what rights and permissions, doing data level controls over who can do what on the cloud much more so than I would worry about making sure that you have know, full data level encryption going on. I'm not saying you shouldn't encrypt it, but I'm saying that that is not the risk. That is most likely to bite you when using a cloud provider.
0: Yeah, fair point. Risk number, f- <clears throat> no, risk number yeah. five is uh, unpatched and unpatchable devices like oh, Windows Server 2003 will be in a couple months.
1: Uh, love, love, love this one. Because they point out, unpatched unpatchable devices are a problem. I think we'd all agree there. Their first piece of advice, institute a patch management program to ensure the devices and software are kept up to date at all times. So, our problem is we can't patch. Our solution is
0: patch. We, we must patch. Well, they, I mean, I think they do go on to exp- clarify a little bit that... Uh, Part of that program needs to be if you can't patch it, and you, you need an agreement. You need an agreed upon plan that you're going to take it off the network.
1: Okay, that that's more viable. Yeah. <laughs> or you need to segregate them and wrap them in a whole lot of monitoring. Right. Uh, keep them away from everything else. Put them on the VLAN of you know forgotten toys or whatever it needs to be. Uh but, but I was very entertained by the fact that the entire problem is we can't patch. And the first thing they talk about is, well, you need a patch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, I, I, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you just need to look at it from the vendor space. You know, it's all very simple. If you make a patch management thing, that's what, you know, all problems are patch related.
1: Apparently I'm just a little ranty tonight. I'm sorry.
0: It's all right, it's all right, but uh, you know, I, I it is it is a good point that um, to be to be perfectly honest, I see this happen as a you know I, I see unpatched and unmanaged devices in an unfortunate number of really significant breaches. I would agree. It is a big problem. Uh,
1: I. I, I... <laughs> The concept of just take it offline, I don't know. That's a tough one. Especially you know, we've we've talked to some of our friends who work in healthcare. And they got boxes that run critical diagnostic and and surgery equipment and such that are running on, you know, Windows three one for work groups and stuff like that. And they can't just take it offline. People die. So um you might have to think a little more outside the box on that one.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, our
1: friends who are in healthcare probably are going to yell at me because I, I don't really know what I'm talking about with healthcare security.
0: That's <laughs> all right. I'm sure they'll forgive you.
1: I watched House for years. I mean, come on.
0: What more do you need? I mean, really. All right. So the uh, the last risk they cite are third-party service providers. And, you know, of course, everybody goes to Home Depot and Target. And, you know, what what do we do to... Uh, limit the access of these people. We need to We need to monitor them. We need to make sure that the people we outsource our uh, pause terminal management to are not using the same password on all of their customers. And we've talked about this one in the past too. And I, you know, one of the problems I see is that a lot of the organizations, certainly there are Uh, There's a continuum here, right? But a lot of the organizations that fall victim to those, you know, pause terminals with either no or default credentials are not sophisticated enough to have a program to evaluate whether their vendors are managing their stuff properly in the first place. So, so, you know, that's, that's one, one big problem space. And, uh, you know, in, in the case of Home Depot and Target, I suspect if you were to look at them individually they thought they were doing a pretty fine job. And, you know, one of the, one of the problems, they actually do kind of say in here is that you know, we're, we're not doing as good at segregating our networks as we think we are, which is the problem in Target, right? We, obviously we thought that there wasn't a path to get from that extra vendor application into our, uh, our POS terminal network, but obviously there was and uh, and so, I think this comes back to threat modeling and risk assessments you know we we need to do a much more competent job of that, and I think that'll that'll uh come out in the wash so anyhow, you know but again, they offer up multi factor authentication and you know least privilege, which you can't argue with any of that stuff, but I'm not exactly sure that it would have no necessarily i necessarily just- helped
1: fundamentally say all third parties are hostile
0: absolutely
1: if you go with that mindset you've got a much better chance of limiting their access and and treating it accordingly that's going to make it a lot tougher to exploit that that vector
0: right right but but again i i still you know and i've written about this and i've talked about this a lot at at some level we have to do a better job understanding the limitations of the technologies we're using to implement those isolations. And I think that we are often overestimating the capability of those and, and we see them, we see them fall and we're surprised by it. And so I'm I'm saying, I'm saying let's, let's do a better job here. So moving on to our final story for the night, this one comes from CSO Online, and the title is "Gap between Perception and Reality of Cyber Threats Widened in 2015." So this was a uh, the output of a report done by Cisco, and I don't think there's anything particularly revolutionary about it, except I always find it very interesting. Um, you know. I'm usually pretty skeptical about reports that are opinion surveys. But I think this is the right way, if you're going to do an opinion survey, this is the right way to think about it. They are taking a look at how these organizations are responding and contrasting that with what's real in the environment. And so as an example, they're saying that 90% of the 1,700 companies they interviewed Say that they are confident in their security efforts uh, meanwhile fifty four percent of those same companies had responded to a public security breach and and so it goes you know that I think this is the um, the, the dunning Kruger effect kind of gone you know, gone into practice where we often are overconfident in our understanding of things, and you know we're, we're we're not necessarily on top of the ball. and And this is just, I think, similar to the last story. I think we often don't have a great handle on what the risk is. And we talked; there was a really good Twitter debate. Uh, that That I know we were involved in earlier today, which basically said the same thing you know that this is this is a real big problem. We have companies and organizations accepting risk kind of ignorant of what the real underlying risk is, and this just in my mind, again going back to the confirmation bias, right it just reinforces the fact that it, at least in my in my view that w- you know we're we're not we're not as um we're not as aware of the scope of the problem as as we think we are and i think the problem would get a lot better if we had a better handle on the risk that's to me that's what this whole report pointed out so or at least affirmed
1: yeah, I would agree. I I definitely agree. And I think it also shows that we, we again are just having a lot of challenging communicating at an executive level the reality.
0: Absolutely. So I think that is the show. Anything else you want to bring up? No.
1: Um we gotta we gotta get you a little happier, man. You've been you've been kinda down on the shows lately. People people have been talking.
0: I know, I know. I'm trying.
1: They say so you either gotta drink heavier. Get some different, you know, math or something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. But Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, well, I don't know where I go from there. <laughs> so, uh, in any but, event. You yeah. know,
1: we were, I was talking about this the other day. This is episode 103, which means you've done at least, you know, more than two years of these now.
0: Yes. And long, I long on time. Episode
1: 30. Right. So I've done seventy some odd of these. It's uh, it's it's pretty good. It's pretty good.
0: Yeah, we have uh, we have built quite a a thing here. So
1: I hope so. I hope people find it valuable.
0: Absolutely. And uh, you know, as as uh, I've always pointed out, if you have any opinions or thoughts or questions, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity dot org. Um, I, I will tell you, I have gotten quite a lot of people. Taking us up on that lately and uh, i've tried to respond back to as many of them as i can i I still have a couple more to go Uh, but um, certainly appreciate everyone who sent us an email anyhow um we we certainly appreciate everyone uh, who has stuck with us and listens to us and uh, hopefully you find it useful if you do tell a friend and uh, with that we will talk again next week hopefully um hopefully i i survive snowmageddon in new york yeah, good luck. Right, uh, if
1: not, uh, I'll be taking over the show and having my cat on as a as a co-host.
0: Awesome. All right. Take care. We'll talk again later. Bye. Hello. You're
1: a minute early. Bye. No, no, don't late me. I'll be sad.
0: Securities. It's such overrated <laughs> shit. Who needs it?